Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there to all you uh, Bedford and Sullivan folk. My name is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. I'm not sure exactly what's going on, and I might have to talk to Blog Talk Radio about some technical difficulties, but they keep sending us on air the second I call. And uh, that is completely throwing off uh, our vibes since we're supposed to be getting on here at uh, one o'clock. So without further ado, uh, for the first show of 2018, which I, I hope uh, will be the length that I had asked for, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just going with the flow here, uh, uh, Brian. And, and, and without further ado, I'm going to welcome Brian Sidney Parrott to the program. Uh, his father was the uh, uh, Brooklyn Dodgers beat writer for the Brooklyn Eagle and also the traveling secretary and publicist for both the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers, and that was Harold Parrott. And, Brian, I'm, I'm sorry to, to invite you on here and have all these uh, blog talk radio issues right now, uh, but I hope we're able to uh, talk for longer than what appears to potentially be five minutes. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, <clears throat> Sam. No, I'm fine. Whatever, whatever works is good with me. Well, uh, welcome, Brian, and I, I guess uh, we're, we're going to – I'm hoping this is going to go as planned, so uh, we're just going to start off uh, right from the get-go and, and tell me about some of your background outside of your father's. Uh, uh, give me, give me um, you know, where you were born and go all the way back to the beginning. Well, I was born during a World Series game, actually, uh, 1947. Uh, Bill Bevins was pitching a no-hitter. And I was born that morning, um, and actually my birth was announced during the broadcast by Red Barber, um, and it went around the world on Armed Forces Radio. So that was October 3rd, 1947. And uh, when I was a boy, Dad used to say, well, Brian was born the day Cookie Lavagetto broke up Bill Bevins' no-hitter. And so I'd heard of Bill Bevins, and... I found out later that they uh, somebody suggested they call me Cookie, Cookie Lavagetto Parrot, but fortunately Mom interceded and, and put me in as Brian Sidney. So anyway, well, that's... And, and here you are now. <laughs> yeah. So that was the beginning. And then um, I was... Um, we lived in Rockaway Beach in New York. Um, you know, Dad had worked for the Brooklyn Eagle for... Uh, 15 years, and then in uh, 44, he became the traveling secretary for Branch Rickey. Um, I was born in 47, and that was, uh, the, we we moved into a, a new house when I'm the fourth of four brothers, and um, so when I was a boy, I used to go to the games to see dad during the uh, summer, because you you know he was gone in the morning, and he, if we wanted to see him, we went to the games, because he had become the ticket manager at uh, 
Ebbets Field for the Dodgers and and publicists. He continued to do a lot of of uh, that type of work and promotion. So um, my job as a youngster, I used to sing. I mean, I still love to sing, actually. And um, I used to sing for company. When the uh, baseball players would bring their families down to our house, we lived one house from the beach in Rockaway, um, I used to sing for company and then uh, go to bed. And so um, the one that I... A famous one, right? Pee Wee Reese always wanted me to sing "Your Cheating Heart," so that was my uh, my my biggest job as a kid. But anyway, that one of the was... greatest songwriters of all time, uh, Hank Williams. <laughs> well, it was yeah, it was a Hank Williams song, I think. And um, you know, a number when I fast forward in my life, I got into promoting tennis, and I was running a, a Davis Cup match and looking at Louisville, Kentucky. And it was um, in the mid-'80s, and I I told the, the the banker and the newspaper and the hotel, and it was a very strong bid from, for Freedom Hall and uh, had just been renovated. And uh, I said my only connection to Louisville was I used to sing your cheating hard for Pee Wee Reese every time he came to our house. And so they said, well, we almost invited, we invited Pee Wee, but he couldn't come today. So I said, well, could I get his phone number? I'd love to call him and say hello. So when I was I was at the airport, I called, and I said, Mr. Reese, he said, yes. I said, do you remember who used to sing your cheating heart for you upon command? And he said, who is this? What kind of a phone call is this? I said, no, Pee Wee, I'm sorry. I should have identified myself. I, I said, I used to sing your cheating heart for you. And he said, you mean at Harold Parrott's house? Is this Brian? And so I said, yes. He said, where are you? And this was like 1986. And I said, I'm in Louisville, but I'm flying back to Oregon. So uh, will you throw out the first ball if we get to the Davis Cup final to Louisville? And he said, absolutely. So anyway, that I, I have that fun peewee connection through the years. So why don't we go go from there? Uh, we'll start with Pee Wee and talk about uh, uh, Pee Wee. Talk about the relationship Harold had with Pee Wee and and uh, as how that evolved uh, once you know you came into the picture. Well, Dad and and Pee Wee were friends. I certainly you know they were close. They're both named Harold. Actually, that's Pee Wee's first name is Harold, and. Um, I know that, you know, they came across each other when Dad was covering the Dodgers in uh, in the late 30s and 40s and when Pee Wee came in. Um, and so they they had a long history that which preceded Dad coming to work for the Dodgers. Um, but my thought about Pee Wee in particular was um, in 1947, the year all hell broke loose in baseball, which was uh, Red Barber's book title, um when they went to Cincinnati and um and it was uh, uh, there was a death threat uh three of them actually on Jackie's life uh with that came in the mail at Crosley Field dad um had to tell Jackie that you know we had to bring the FBI in cuz they were, they were took it seriously obviously and the FBI uh, met and thought that they, if they were going to shoot Jackie, as they said in the three different letters, 
um, that they might do do it during the Star Spangled Banner. And so uh, Dad told Jackie and Dad told Pee Wee and the captain, and that's how close they were. He told them, you know, this is what's going on. And so um, anyway, there were no shots fired at uh, during the Star Spangled Banner. But when Jackie, you know, was up to bat in the first inning and popped up and they ridiculed him from, you know, the bench, um, not, not only the bench but the fans, Pee Wee stopped behind first base uh, and put his arm around Jackie. Dad said 32,000 people went dead silent, um, unbelieving that Pee Wee would put his arm around uh, a Negro. And the thing that connects my, in my mind is Dad told Pee Wee what was going on, and that's the way Pee Wee responded to a public display. Uh, you know, we're going to get through this. And that was a big incident that was, he was publicly accepted by the captain in 1947. So the Harold Parrott Pee Wee Reese connection was strong through the years. So in terms of that, people have always struggled with trying to pinpoint exactly the game. They think that sometimes uh, it wasn't necessarily 1947. This is what I've heard, you know, but you, you pretty much definitively because your father was involved here kind of directed it towards 1947 so you can you can definitively put a date on it oh yeah no I, there's no question about it that my father told me about you know about that uh what happened that day uh but the, it was in crosley field in 47 on the first road trip because see my father was um uh had been a sports writer and was, you know, anyway, he was, I wouldn't ever describe him as a civil rights advocate, He, but he was concerned about Jackie Robinson enough that after the Philadelphia uh, road trip and Ben Chapman blasting uh, Jackie for, you know, throughout the game and then the rest of the team chiming in, my father, after the road trip in Philly, went to, Mr. Ricky's house, and Harold Parrott said, you've got to put a stop to this. He's going to have a nervous breakdown, and we're going to be responsible for it. You can't do this. And my father tried to talk Ricky out of, um, you know, the the whole Jackie Robinson black experiment because he was that concerned about Jackie. And Ricky leaned back in his chair and he said now what's what's gotten into you how come you're now you're worried about him what do you think is happening and ricky predicted at that meeting and that confrontation the dad said you know you can't do this to this guy he said harold on any team there are fair-minded men and when they see how unfair the treatment is they will rally around him and provide a cauldron to protect him. But he said it'll there'll be an incident, and I don't know when it's going to happen. And Dad wrote in his book, Lords of Baseball, that Ricky could predict human behavior as accurately as a reading a railroad timetable because the incident Ricky predicted happened on the very next road trip into Cincinnati with all the the hate mail and then the uh, the death threats. So there's no question in my mind that it happened then. And in fact, I remember when my father was explaining, you know, what when Jackie took was at first base 
and Pee Wee stopped behind first base on his way to shortstop, he said 32,000 people went dead silent, and he said the Mm. silence was thunderous. They couldn't believe that Pee Wee was putting his arm around Robinson in front of all the people from Louisville and, you know, in that area. So there's no question in my mind it happened then. So I, I, before we go all the way back to the beginning of your, your dad's life, it was something that you mentioned that, that intelligence told them that it could potentially happen during the Star Spangled Banner. And, and before we get all the way back to really what the subject at hand is, which is your father, can you, like, it's just amazing to me that, they would think that the people who want Jackie dead and don't want the experiment to continue, quote unquote, the experiment really, um, is that uh, that they they would have taken care of him during the national anthem. It's pretty it's pretty astounding to even conceptualize that. It really is, and in fact, the FBI um, had people positioned all around the stadium and up on the roof. So they took it seriously, and um, Dad said when he told Jackie, he said he could see his face change, you know, that there was this, there were three death threats. And so, um, you know, Dad uh, opened, um, not, you know, Jackie's mail. Jackie got a lot of fan mail, and there were a lot of fans to greet them at the train when they came in. But he, Dad would throw away the, you know, hate mail, and then, but the three death threats, we, he, that was uh, – you know, serious enough that Dad had to notify the FBI, and they they met before the game. So, um, yeah, it was very heated, and you know, and there was uh, you know, strong, to say the least, strong feelings uh, against the uh, Negroes coming to work. Uh, you know, play baseball. Ben Chapman, this is one that comes to mind. I think is kind of an interesting quote that my father put in an article that people had a hard time believing uh, that Chapman was so vile against Jackie. But Chapman said to my father, he said, poor parrot. He said, you know what you're going to wind up? And Dad said, what am I going to wind up? He he said, you're going to wind up nursemaid to 24, and he used the N-word, and a Dago. And he was referring to (laughs) Garfarillo. And my father wrote, you know, uh, he said he didn't like Ferrillo either. But um, the... Uh, oh, uh, I've heard he, some stories. And so that's... Um, anyway, The uh, my father said, well, if I had a choice of room with you or 42, I'd pick 42. And Dad thought Chapman might hit him at that time because, you know, it was that was in 47, you know, and that... Mm-hmm. So that was... Um, there was, to say the least, I mean, it's an understatement. It was strong negative feelings and uh, the mail uh, that came, you know, dad once described it was like the smut you'd read on a bathroom wall, but it was, um, the the hate mail was one thing, but the death threats were another. Yeah, and and I think we'll certainly uh, circle back around to that eventually, if not on this podcast, because I'm I'm a little concerned. I've already reached out to Blog Talk Radio. Uh, and um, we're basically this wasn't this didn't go how it's supposed to open. And uh, okay. Brian, however long we have, we'll 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 take it. And uh, if if uh, obviously we'll set up another time to be to be able to go as deep as we can. Anyway, 
So sure. I want to go all the way back to the beginning of Harold's life, if you, you, wherever you want to start with that. Well, my father was an only child. Um, he was born in 1909 in uh, Howard Beach, and um, his father, my grandfather, Sidney, my middle name, uh, was uh, had been a gentleman's gentleman in England and came to the United States and went to work for uh, W&J Sloan in New York, uh, antique furniture. And uh, my grandfather was actually on the uh, worked on the Hearst Castle, William Randolph Hearst um, hired W.J. Sloan, and my de- my grandfather was in charge of extracting the rooms from the castles in uh, Europe to send to San Simeon out in California. But anyway, um, my my father's mother, my grandmother uh, Catherine, was a very hard driving, um, and she was she had dad learn ten words a day out of the dictionary before he could go out to play when he was little. And so that was part of the deal. She was grooming him to be an English professor. And um, Dad won a lot of spelling bees as a as a result of all of that. And she put him into these competitions, and he won spelling bees in New York. And they put him into high school at 11 years old, and they put him into college at 14 at St. John's University. So my father... Uh, you know, graduated at 18 from college from St. John's, uh, number two in his class, and then he got his master's degree uh, in English from St. John's. And that was the plan that, you know, he was going to be, she was grooming him to be an English professor. But he liked sports. He was too small to to uh, compete with, uh, you know, the athletes in St. John's at the time. And so he wound up uh, providing um sports stories for basketball and football to the Brooklyn Eagle and that's how his relationship started with the Brooklyn Eagle and when he graduated um and he got his masters at 21 the Eagle offered him a job and so that's my father was very uh, brilliant i never stumped him on a word i'd say dad what does this word mean and he'd say well here it's a the, he give me the Greek and the Latin derivations, then use it in a sentence and explain what it was. I ne- never once, he, you know, uh, stump. I now never tried to stump him, but he always knew he was very articulate, and that's re- one of the reasons he and Branch Rickey were very close friends because Mr. Rickey had a tremendous uh, vocabulary and education, and so they were on a par intellectually. Yeah, and it, it seemed as if uh, it was really a relationship that came together at the perfect time. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, my my dad was also uh, another thing my my grandmother did, <laughs> which is hard to believe, but he, he they uh, um, he had or she had my father uh, dive into the water in Howard Beach every day for one year through the winter. And he could dive in wow. and then come right out. But and I said, why did he? Do, why did she do that? And he he said the discipline, you know, just to you know that you could dive into ice cold water and get out. Um, but she was always bragging about him. My Harold did this. My Harold did that. So um, she cut out when he did start writing. She cut out every article he ever wrote in the scrapbooks. That uh, from 19, I think 27 
through 43 or whatever, you know, it was an annual, you know, and the scrapbooks are incredible to look at, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And I'm guessing that he never got into a shower and had an issue before the heat came on. <laughs> no, <laughs> he, could handle, uh, he could handle cold water. So, yeah, and um, he could handle uh, a man like Larry McPhail. A, a man like who? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, he, he could handle a man like Larry McPhail. Yes. Dad was fascinated with Larry McPhail. You know, my father was um, um, covering the Dodgers when McPhail was running, came in to run it. And uh, he was such, you know, Dad called him Larry Sulfurious McPhail. He had, a, you know, a temper, but he also was a heavy drinker. And um, there was an incident. Dad wrote something McPhail didn't like and. McPhail punched my father in the nose and banned him from Ebbets Field for life, uh, you know, because of something Dad had written. And, um, you know, that was, but, you know, the next day when McPhail sobered up and the Eagle uh, responded that they weren't going to let that happen, you know, Dad went back to cover the Dodgers. But there's a lot of great McPhail stories in my father's book, The, the Lords of Baseball. Because he, he admired McPhail's uh, innovations, and he was the first to do a lot of things, and was uh, was an amazing uh, uh, owner for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, and you know, um, unfortunately, a World Series championship didn't come from his tenure, but. He really did a lot to set that team up, and, and it's remarkable to me that he ended up being on the other side of things for the 1947 uh, uh, story. Right. He was. He had gone to the war. Now, Dad said he was fired, but McPhail said that he was he was volunteering, and he became um, General Patton's um, uh, an assistant for um, George Patton in Europe. Um, and then, you know, Dad said he could turn a firing into, a, you know, an act of heroism and glory, and he goes, you know, to World War II. But then when he came back uh, in 1947, he was running the Yankees. So he was he was on the other side of the uh, the branch, Ricky, and the, the, uh, the breaking of the color line. And from what I understand, McPhail wanted to break the color line um, as I've read, and I, you know, I can't, I cannot attest to the accuracy of this, but that he wanted to integrate baseball all at once, all the teams instead of. Uh, but Ricky went ahead and and made the move, and Dad said they were all against it. He said there was a meeting that they denied, but they voted 15 to one against the uh, Ricky bringing or signing Jackie Robinson, and that. Uh, the other owners were not in favor of uh, of breaking the color line at that time in 1947. Yeah, you know, people are, are scared of change. And, and uh, you know, without getting political about it uh, necessarily, uh, the word progressive, uh, you know, can, can mean, can have negative connotations. But for me, the word progress always, is is a positive thing, even if uh, you know sometimes it, it it just 
all happens at once and people can't really can't can't really face it properly. Right. Well, it was you know Ricky Ricky had sent out his scouts. Dad told me that you know he bet on a short shorter war than everybody else was expecting, and um, he started signing up uh, talent, but it included. Uh, Jackie Robinson, and also, you know, included Roy Campanella, and there were, you know, other possible choices for uh, breaking the color line. But um, it was Ricky's, um, you know, Jackie was the perfect choice because he was, a, you know, second lieutenant in in the army, in and he had been court-martialed. Many people know about it, but a lot of people don't. That Jackie got court-martialed in 1945 um, for refusing to go to the back of a bus on a military base in Texas, and um, he fought the. Uh, you know, he was court-martialed and then fought it. And you know, Joe Lewis, according to the stories that I've uh, heard and read, you know, was trying to talk him into not fighting it. And because he thought it would ruin his baseball possibilities, but Jackie fought it and won. And um, because there was, you know, Jackie knew the rules. There's no discrimination on any military base worldwide, and he refused to go to the back of the bus. So Ricky knew he had a, a strong-willed person of principle. And on a tape that uh, Branch Ricky's grandson gave me, it's not, it's a CD. Ricky explains, and I, I think it's a classic that more people should hear. Ricky is saying in 1956 at the founding banquet of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, he says, and this is a quote, I've listened to it so many times, Robinson was not an ideal man for the job. He was resentful of criticism and quick to retaliate at anybody that would discriminate against him based on the pigmentation of his skin. You know, this is Ricky talking. He said, and he said, but he, Ricky was reading to uh, Robinson from a book by a man named Papini who went into the hills of Italy to write a treatise to discredit the Christ. And after two years of exhaustive study, according to Mr. Ricky, uh, it's one of the great treatises for the Christ. But what Ricky was doing was getting Robinson mentally prepared, and he read to him about the the uh, the chapter on force, and it's on war. He said, really, but there are three options when you're 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 coming up against uh, force. You can uh, run from it, and then he you know explains the negatives of that. You can fight back. Or the third is, you know, the uh, biblical in injunction of, of the Christ-like behavior, you know, to turn the other cheek. And Ricky was getting Robinson ready to turn the other cheek for at least two years. And uh, I think it's fascinating how smart Ricky was and, um, and that he had, you know, selected Robinson uh, as being, somebody being strong enough. He wasn't... He didn't have to take crap from anybody. He was six foot two and was a great athlete, and was, you know, you know, could have clocked anybody. But 
Ricky was telling Robinson, if if you retaliate, they're going to blame you. It's all going to be about you. So, you know, that was um, the brilliance of Ricky and the fact that Robinson was was strong enough to withstand the tremendous pressure of that first year. So it seems as if 1949 was when Branch Ricky was like, you know what, go at, do whatever you want to do. Not necessarily whatever you want to do, but it seemed as if that year was when he was like, you can, you know, the people have, have uh, chilled out a little bit, and that's when Jackie kind of had a little bit more bark. Yeah, he started coming out of his that shell, not he was in a shell, but... Um, it, just backing up with my father and Jackie, uh, their story, um, when Jackie made it, um, Jackie got, had a radio show every Sunday night from wherever they were, and uh, Dad wrote the copy for the radio show. So they were, you know, closely every Sunday, they'd go to a radio station if they were on the road. And so uh, Dad and Jackie, you know, were very close. And, uh, you know, starting in in 49, um, I guess if that's the year that Jackie started to, you know, argue with umpires and, and uh, you know, had been accepted. And then by that time, you know, uh, Roy Campanella was there. There's, there is a story I think is kind of fascinating in the Lords of Baseball. The second year uh, Campanella was with the team, and during spring training, they were going through the south, and uh, Dad said, we, you know, they had 100 miles to go, and he needed to have, feed the team. You know, everybody, they were hungry, and they pulled into a restaurant in the south, and the restaurant would not let Robinson or Campanella come in, and Dad couldn't get anybody to bring the food out to, you know, to let Jackie and Roy eat something on the bus. So Dad brought it out, and um, so, you know, uh, Dad said, you know, Campanella was, you know, ate it right up, and Jackie was seething. He was so mad that they wouldn't serve him and and that everybody else was in the restaurant, and Jackie didn't touch a bite of it. And when they got back to New York, Dad told Mr. Ricky of this incident, and Ricky said, well, there's the difference between the two of them. He said, Robinson is our black gentleman, and he said, uh, and Campanella, and this was, I'm just going to tell you what Ricky said. He said, compared to Robinson, he's more like a shoeshine boy. He said, mind you, I like shoeshine boys, but Campanella could not have handled all of that negativity the way that Jackie had, and according to Ricky, and so anyway, that was that was an incident in the second year, and must have been in '48. Uh, but you know, Roy Campanell said, "Jackie, don't get mad. They're going to send us back to those Negro leagues. You know, don't you know, make a big deal of it." And so, but anyway, there was a difference between the two of them. But I guess I'm. It, it's an amazing. It's an amazing contrast in in um, of the civil rights era of between Roy Campanella and, and uh, Jackie Robinson at the time. And it's, um, I had another thought that I'm completely spacing on it uh, exactly, but uh, when when it comes to, when it comes to uh, 
Jackie Robinson fighting back in those little ways at the time. Um, oh, yeah, I know exactly where I was going to go with it. In terms of Branch Rickey, like, we shouldn't sugarcoat the fact that there was, of course, still uh, racism in somewhat, just because of how, however, like, even as unracist as Branch Rickey said, you know, was, and uh, because, you know, I always think back to the story he told uh, um, Red Barber when he said that he was going to bring, uh, um, and of course I quote, a Negro to, to the uh, major leagues. Um, but still, rhetoric-wise, you know, the way he discussed how Branch Rickey talked about uh, the people he was bringing on board, it right. there still was a gray area. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, it was racism was was accepted. And um, another thing, my dad told me that Red Barber was um, being from Florida and Tallahassee. He was considering leaving the Dodgers when Ricky brought um, Robinson up, and my father talked him out of it and said, "No, don't do that. You know, let's, you know, don't, you know." And I think Mr. Barber uh, considered Dad a. a a very close friend, I know, because, but anyway, um, anyways, it was it was tough. Here's another uh, uh, fact, Sam, that I think is kind of fascinating when you're putting all these pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, in 2011, my brother Todd, who was a bat boy along with my brother Lynn uh, for the Dodgers in 1947, they traveled with Dad, Todd and Lynn did. But anyway. Um, I, I put a lunch together with Todd and um, Ralph Branca and I at the Westchester Country Club in New York, and uh, we had a beautiful lunch. And I asked Ralph, I said, Ralph, when did they actually bring Jackie up? Now think about this. He said, Brian, he said the season started on a Tuesday, and they brought him up on Sunday, only three days before the season started. So I, my guess is that Ricky was saying he didn't want to, he wanted to wait to the last minute so that the petition by the Southerners might bolt and all that stuff. He wanted to do it, but he did it, you know, on a Sunday prior to a Tuesday of the opening of the 47 season. That's pretty amazing It's in itself. Well, I guess, I guess then it kind of goes under the radar. Because I hear, you know, I've heard in terms of the actual day, there wasn't as much of a momentous feeling amongst the entire culture as there is now about the entire event. Yeah. Well, and, I and, know there and, was and speculation. If you, if you think about it, was, like you know, Sunday, but everybody, it was, everybody's um, in church in the morning, you know? Everybody's been eating after church. Yeah. Well, you know, Ricky was a brilliant man, and he made the moves, and he made the he made the selection of Jackie, and then he he handled it in such a way that um, you know he knew that there was problems. Obviously, um, the story about uh, Dixie Walker circulating a petition um, again. My father's in the middle of that because they were in Florida, and uh, Robinson was had not been brought up to the Dodgers, but. Um, the petition was circulating, and Kirby Higby was a pitcher for from South Carolina. Told my dad about the petition, so my father, you know, 
immediately tells his roommate, Leo DeRocher, the manager, that we got problems because there's a petition that Walker's bringing around and they've got, you know, seven or eight signatures already. They're not going to suit up if Ricky brings Robinson up. And um, Dad called Mr. Ricky, and then uh, he got on a plane and came down the next day to meet one-on-one with every player. And um, so, the, you know, obviously they knew this was going to be, uh, you know, a big deal and it was going to be a problem with the Southern ball players. But anyway, Ricky brought everybody in one at a time. And a few of the stories, my father told me uh, what Ricky said, but one that I heard from Pee Wee's son, Mark, was that Ricky said, will you play with him? And he said, yes. He said, but he said, if I lose my job, he said, Mr. Ricky, Robinson's a shortstop. And if I lose my job to him, I'll never live it down in Louisville. And Ricky said, well, Pee Wee, you're our shortstop. He's going to play first base. And But Rick, uh, Pee Wee did not sign the petition, even though uh, Dixie Walker was his best man at his wedding and Pee Wee was uh, uh, Dixie Walker's best man at their wedding. So they were that close. And uh, But Pee Wee wanted to give Jackie at least a chance to play. So... It seems as if just like it's amazing how, you know, people's characters got exposed in this event because there, there, yes. was, a, there was a fork in, there was a fo- a fork in the road. And right. Pee Wee Reese and Dixie Walker did, went different ways. Right. I thought this one is I, – I haven't told this one in a while, but Dad said when Ferrillo came in <laughs> – and uh, Mr. Ricky wanted to know if he would play with Robinson. And uh, uh, Ricky said to Ferrillo, he said, Ferrillo, where are your parents from? And he said, Sicily. He said, how did they get to the United States? He said, they came on a boat. He said, now think for a minute, uh, Carl, Ferrillo, you know, what if somebody had a petition at the boat, no Ferrillos were allowed in the United States? Where would you be right now? And then Ferrillo said, well, I, I never thought of it like that, Mr. Ricky. And, he, you know, because he was, he was, Ricky handled each one of them one at a time and then found out who wanted to be traded and, and then who that, that's was. Amazing. Uh, that's amazing, by the way, a uh, detail yeah. that kind of goes unnoticed. Um, I, here's another little one. Speaking of Ferrillo and Italians, when I was uh, doing the book tour for Dad's Lords of Baseball, when we republished it in, in 2001, I tracked down Al Gianfrido in Santa Barbara. He was at a golf course, a starter, and I took him to lunch, and I showed him the book. And on the cover of the book, we have the very first picture of Robinson with the Dodgers in the back row. Uh, Dixie Walker is turning his head, so... He refused to face the camera because Robinson was there. And in the front row, on the far right, in the lower row, you know, with their legs crossed, was Al Gianfrido and then Jackie Robinson and then uh, Carl Ferrillo. And uh, Mr. Gianfrido said to me, he said, Jackie was sitting between Ferrillo and me for a reason. You want to know what it was? I said, yeah, sure. He said, we were the three Italians. Southerners didn't like us either. <laughs> so they hung out <laughs> together. 
So, so going to Carl Perillo, I'll, I'll uh, start with a story that my uncle uh, tells sometimes, and, and I'm not sure if I'm going to get the whole story correct, but he says that, you know, my, my uncle who lived in Brooklyn was a Giants fan, and he says that he uh, once saw a bunch of players, and um, I, I forget exactly other players he actually who were nice to him, but Carl Perillo, he was like, hey, Carl, can I get an autograph? And he's like, beat it, kid. And my father says to him, that's all right. I just want Willie Mays uh, anyway. Or he said some Dodgers. You know, uh, I'm, I'm saying Willie Mays because I know my, my uncle was a, a Giants fan. But it seems like Carl Frillo had a bit of a chip on his so- shoulder and wasn't the nicest all the time. Yeah, I guess he wasn't as personable as like a Pee Wee or Gil Hodges, you know, uh, Duke Snyder and some of the others, but yeah, Furillo, you know, you know, Furillo, what an arm he had. I remember watching him when I was a kid. We'd go to the Ebbets Field all the time, and he could throw like Roberto Clemente, a frozen rope from deep right field into third base. It was just an amazing thing to watch. He had an incredible arm. So, you know, you, you mentioned going to the Dodgers. It had uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers not moved out you'd probably still be a Dodger fan, which a lot of people probably would say. But it's interesting the way, um, you know, them leaving and then possibly even, and, and I'll, I'll let you respond to this, uh, how your dad left the Dodgers. Um, you know, your personal baseball fandom has kind of gone across the map at, at certain points uh, over the last, uh, you know, uh, decades, the last few decades. Yeah, well, when we moved to California, um, I was 10 years old. And, um, you know, all of a sudden we're moving to California. And, you know, as a kid, like, why? You know, well, the Dodgers are moving out to Los Angeles. And so, you know, and I had a lot of friends in school, and it was, like, not something to say, oh, yeah, let's go. Um, And my, my mom said, well, you know, there are horses out there, you know, and I was a big cowboy fan Hopalong Cassidy and Lone Ranger and stuff. And so the, mom said, well, horses ride right in front of the house we're going to probably live in. And and that's, that's what hooked me. And so we moved to California, and Dad was, uh, you know, he writes about it in his Lords of Baseball, how when the, it was announced that they were moving to California, um, Dad was in charge of tickets, and they started taking ticket uh, orders for Wrigley Field is where they were going to play, where the, you know, the, the Hollywood stars and the uh, the California Angels played. And the ticket money came in so fast that O'Malley said, stop, we're going we're gonna to maybe go to the Rose Bowl. So they looked at the Rose Bowl for a while, and then it was stop again, we're going to the Coliseum because they, the ticket orders were so strong that, um, you know, they wound up uh, playing in Memorial Coliseum, uh, which was 102000 for football, um, and Dad was in charge of the tickets. So in, in those first four years, well, while they were building Dodger Stadium, um, from 58 through 61, 58, 9, 60, 61, um, I would go to the Coliseum to the games. And as I was a little bit older, I, I got to throw in 
uh, balls from the outfield during batting practice in the Coliseum and <laughs> throw them into the pitching mound from uh, the Chinese wall in left field and then um, caught Fungo for Leo, who was a, a coach, and uh, as he warmed up the infield with Maury Wills and Charlie Neal and Junior Gilliam and so then... Brian. Uh, Brian, with that, with that, uh, uh, the LA Coliseum versus the Rose Bowl. How many seats did the Rose Bowl take? About a hundred thousand. Okay, so do you think that's a very good representation of? And I'm not sure how the Rose Bowl would have played baseball wise, so you can probably inform me on that. But you know, when I at at face value, when we're look going, you know, going down the rabbit hole of Walter O'Malley. That's another incident where, I mean, because I thought baseball-wise, the L.A. Coliseum was just horrendous in terms of the way it played and the way it was, it was laid out. So versus the Rose Bowl, how would the Rose Bowl have played baseball-wise? It would have been the same, Sam, because, you know, okay. uh, basically the Rose Bowl is just the same configuration as the Coliseum. Um, the left field... You know, there was in the Coliseum there was a track. It was built for the Olympics in '32, and um, from home plate down the left field line was only 250 feet. So they had to construct. They constructed a uh, a wall that must have been 90 feet high. I don't know how how tall that chain link fence was, but they put that up in um, in left field. And then they had, you know, center field was very deep, and so was right field. Um, so, it, but it was, you know, then Wally Moon came in and, you know, learned how to hit a kind of a chip shot, the moon shots, they called them, and he could hit home runs. Because you could hit a ball that would but be a home run anywhere, shot, and it would be a single or sometimes a double, but... It would come right off the chain link fence, and they'd throw it in. And um, but you know, if you had a high pop fly, it could be a home run in left field. But the reason for the Coliseum was O'Malley wanted you know to take advantage of the fact that they would have sold out Wrigley uh, Field. Uh, you know, they wouldn't have had enough uh, you know seats to handle the demand in in nineteen. 19- right. 40, uh, I mean, not 40, but 1959, when they got to the World Series against the um, uh, the White Sox, um, there were 93,000 for uh, games at the during the World Series against Louis Aparicio and Nellie Fox, and uh, my dad handled all those tickets, I, and I, that's another, I said, how did you do that? How did you get 93,000 tickets out three times? within a week and he said well i had to bring food into the ticket office and everybody had to stay there 24 hours um the people were lined up around the coliseum to get the world series tickets those those so are much three easier records now, huh? that'll never be broken yeah that's but you know it was before they had any electronic tickets right exactly i mean it's remarkable i can just like pull down a tab and there it is on my phone now <laughs> Yeah. So it's it's amazing to hear, uh, yeah, the stories about the Dodgers going over there, um, you know, and, and, and from a, a creative perspective, it's probably not going to be covered too much because I, I have a certain 
idea for how I would want to end right after they leave uh, because I'm really going for the, the depression more so uh, of how Brooklyn felt than I am for the exhilaration that L.A. felt. Uh, right. But but uh, I have a certain way creatively, of course, and I'm not, not going to play my cards now. But <laughs> uh, no, that's so, fine. So yeah, yeah. So going to that, it seems it seems as if when looking at uh, the decision Walter O'Malley made between the Rose Bowl and the L.A. Coliseum, you can't fault him for taking nine thousand extra seats. No, 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 definitely not. No, I and, mean, well. When they got into the Coliseum, um, Dad looked at the seats. You know, again, he was the ticket manager. And the, for football, people sat, I think it might have been 18 inches apart, you know, each section. And Dad said there was no shade in there at all. So there, there, on a hot summer day, the people are going to be sitting too close to each other. So he he put in cushions, blue, Dodger blue cushions, and then took out every fifth seat. So it dropped the capacity from 102,000 down to 93,000. And the cushion was more comfortable than the bench seats that people sit on for the Rams games or football. Um, And, again, it would have been similar in the Rose Bowl. But, um, anyway, that was, you know, when one of the – Ed Roebuck was a pitcher. He came in and looked at the Coliseum, and uh, his first comment was, this is the Grand Canyon with seats. It was so big, you know, so, but anyway, it was certainly a big success. Yeah, uh, and and you can't really fault him for wanting to get 93000 out of out of the whole move. And, and going to that, Let's talk about his relationship with Walter O'Malley. And you said he was, you know, him and Branch really came together. Um, and Branch, when he left, uh, everybody around Branch kind of got was gotten rid of because Walter didn't want anybody connected to him, but he kept your father around. Right. My father was, you know, and I'll, I'll use Buzzy Bavese, you know, who was O'Malley's number two man in the Dodgers. Uh, to explain this, uh, Mr. Bavese was a close friend, obviously, of my dad, and I went to see him when I was trying to put two and two together what happened to dad after 21 years with the Dodgers. Anyway, uh, this is Buzzy speaking. He said, "He said, Brian, first you got to understand how much uh, Walter O'Malley hated Branch Rickey and anybody closely associated with him was either fired or going to be fired. And he said, but your father was too valuable an employee, and we needed him for the move to go to California and to set up. And, you know, Dad did an incredible job in only several months. You know, they left in November or whatever, and they have to opening day in April uh, to handle, you know, the, the tickets in L.A. But my father was, as a writer, had continued to write, and he was a great contact for the Dodgers with Jim Murray in Los Angeles uh, as one example of the top sports writer with the L.A. Times. And uh, the New York writers considered uh, Jim Murray sort of a joke columnist, like he wouldn't know anything about baseball. But Dad helped Mr. Murray, Jim Murray, get 
connected with Koufax and Drysdale and Pee Wee and everybody else. And Mr. Murray loved my father because uh, my father would help writers uh, and was an excellent liaison uh, for the Dodgers with the media. Melvin Durslag was another writer in L.A. at the time. But anyway, Dad was, you know, was a big-time New York sports writer and was well-respected by all the media. And uh, so Dad was very valuable. And while they were building Dodger Stadium, once they got in to Dodger Stadium, that's when O'Malley pulled the trap door on my father. And uh, I don't know if you want me to get into any of that story, but... My father was... Yeah, uh, please. No, at... absolutely. Go go down that way. Well, let me just back it up by telling you how I heard about this, what happened. Okay, I was doing a book signing in Seattle at a Mariner game, and um, I was going around the country working with Sabre, the Society of American Baseball Researchers, uh, to do book signings for republishing the Lords of Baseball. And so... Um, we, I called Rocky Bridges, came over from Idaho, and then uh, Eddie O'Brien played for Mr. Ricky with Pittsburgh, and he was uh, one of the first the Pittsburgh they twins, Eddie and Johnny O'Brien. So he was our athletic director when I played tennis at Seattle U. And then Sabre uh, invited Ron Fairley, who was doing color commentator for the Mariners. Okay, so... They had a game with the Orioles that day, so we said, let's put up Fairley first, and then we'll let him go because he's got a game. Um, so Ron Fairley, I was running the – we had about 75 people. And, you know, he told – you know, I introduced Ron Fairley, and this is a book signing for the Lords of Baseball. And he told some funny stories how he negotiated his own contract with Buzzy Bavese for – $10,000 and thought he did great and all this stuff. And so, you know, he, he told some great stories. And so it's time for us to let him go. And I said, Ron, one more question. And I'm teeing him up just to say something nice about Harold Parrott and the book, which he obviously didn't realize that he was doing a book signing for Harold Parrott. But anyway, I said, Ron, one last question. Who was Harold Parrott? Fairly looks at me and he said, oh, he's a guy who got in a lot of trouble. Yeah, one day Walter O'Malley was driving up to Dodger Stadium, and he said, I wonder why my ticket manager has a better car than I do. And he looked into it, and he found he was running ticket money through Las Vegas, and he fired him. So in about 45 seconds, Ron Fairley is just calling my father an embezzler, and that O'Malley, you know, that's what he was told. I said, What's your source for that information? He said, Walter O'Malley himself told me that. And I said, final question, you know who Bill Birch was? He said, yeah, he was the Oldsmobile dealer in Alhambra. And, uh, you know, I bought a car from, you know, Bill Birch. So anyway, Fairley leaves the room, and a guy in the front row who was originally from Brooklyn, who had come down from Vancouver, British Columbia, he said, did your father ever get another job in baseball after that? I said, that's a perfect question. He was immediately hired by Gene Autry uh, to open Anaheim Stadium. And, um, wow. uh, you know, was wow. there for four years and then was asked by Marvin Milks to help open with the Seattle Pilots because I was up in Seattle. And then uh, and he finished with Buzzy Bavese in San Diego. 
So I, you know, in other words, and I could have said, you know, if he was an embezzler, he wouldn't have gotten in a job like that. That was O'Malley lying about my father. But anyway, I said, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And so I contacted, I called Leah, uh, Buzzy Bavese in La Jolla. And I drove down there, and I said, Buzzy, i got to see you. I wanted to, Ron Fairley said some things about Dad, and I'd like to know if you would shed some light on him. So this was the meeting that I had at Harry's Cafe in La Jolla, and I recorded it, by the way, Sam. Um, Buzzy starts out, he said, Brian, first of all, you've got to realize how much Ricky was hated by O'Malley, but your father was too valuable. We needed him. And he, O'Malley was always suspicious of how uh, your dad worked with the ticket brokers in Los Angeles. Dad would sell the tickets to these brokers that had the Hollywood Bowl and anything else and Rams. And, and that was a way of getting tickets out, not only to celebrities, but to, you know, to more people. And um, so this is Buzzy telling me, he said, so Walter had Peter Pitches, the sheriff of Los Angeles, checking your father's bank account on a regular basis. And when there was a deposit for $6,000 in your dad's account, O'Malley said, that's ticket money. And then he, he proceeded to fire my father And at that time. And Buzzy went to him and he said, that's not ticket money. He just sold his boat in, Los, you know, in Marina del Rey, the Dodger 4 was the name, and for $6,000. He said, but Walter wouldn't listen. And he said, what he did to your father was criminal. He said, you know, but when it came to money, there was something wrong with Walter. Now, just to let you know, why was Dad driving an Oldsmobile? Well, Bill Birch uh, bought 43 season tickets every year to the Dodgers and would use them to sell Oldsmobiles out of Alhambra. And he gave my dad a new car to drive every year. So Dad, you know, would drive a Tornado and... It was just a promotional thing, but Dad never got money from it, but but that's why he was driving a nicer car than Walter O'Malley. So um, that's what happened to my so father. What, what now, was Walter O'Malley not doing buying a nicer car if he cared so much about money and appearance? Well, I don't know. If I use the uh, the quote from Buzzy, when it came to money, there was something wrong with Walter. I think he was a miserly man. I don't know. I don't remember what kind of car he drove, but he was not extravagant. He, But when it came to money, there was something wrong with Walter was Buzzy's statement. So there's a couple of stories in the Lords of Baseball which are not very flattering to Walter. One of them was they were going to uh, Japan for a few games, um, and the Dodger plane was full, and the 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 treasurer, I believe, of the Dodgers was in in bad health and he wanted to go he and his wife wanted to go to Japan with the Dodgers on that trip well two tickets or two seats opened up and my father put this treasurer of the Dodgers and his wife on the plane and O'Malley brought dad into his office and said who authorized this and dad said I did he said you know he wanted to go and there was those these people had to pull out, and so I put them in. He said, do you have any idea how much it's going to cost to ship a body back from Japan? And so O'Malley was thinking about this guy dies in Japan. He was in poor enough health, and he's going to have to pick up the tab to ship a body back. That's the way 
Walter was thinking about, uh, you know, this man, you know, and I don't remember his name at the moment, but it's in the Lords of Baseball. But there were there were other. Yeah, it's just money. You know, money, yeah. As much of a heart he, as he has, and Carl Erskine has been on this podcast and talked glowingly about Walter. Right. I think you nail. I think you nail it with the Buzzy Bavazi quote: "Is that there was right. something wrong when it comes to money with Walter?" So, right. Yeah. And, and I do and, think and before, Sam, this is yeah, just ahead, you know me. I'm 70 years old now and thinking about it, all these, you know, finding out little bits and pieces along the line. Um, I think he also, Walter wanted to get out from underneath uh, Ricky's shadow. Uh, Los Angeles would be a brand new place. And another thing I think is pretty interesting um, is that the Pacific Coast League had eight teams that were very successful. The Seattle Rainiers, the Portland Beavers, two in San Francisco, the Seals and the Oakland Oaks, two in L.A., the San Diego Padres, and the Sacramento Solons. Now, I know from a sports writer in Portland, Oregon, where I lived for close to 40 years, he said, Brian, in the early 50s, the Pacific Coast League was was being considered and presented to the major leagues to it was so it was much stronger than regular minor league baseball and that they would bring in they put them in a special status for a year or possibly two and then bring in all eight teams into major league baseball bringing major league baseball to the west coast now that came close but it didn't go through my speculation and this is purely Brian Parrott's speculation O'Malley had to listen to the presentation from the Pacific Coast League saying we have these franchises, this is what our ticket revenue is and all this other stuff. And he must have listened and said, hey, if L.A. can support two minor league franchises and San Francisco two minor league franchises, and they're not really minor league, the Pacific Coast League had some great history, um, if he could talk Stoneham into taking San Francisco and he took L.A., He'd make a fortune, which he did. What what year what year was that? In the early fifties, the Pacific Coast okay, League. Okay, so 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 probably like nineteen fifty two, nineteen fifty three. Right. Okay, you know, I'm just like, I as as somebody who has to like lay it all out, I'm, I I just try to focus heavily on the timeline as to where I'm trying to put that. So I, right. yeah, I got to look into exactly when that Pacific Coast League presentation might have been. Because 1948, as we all know, or as everybody who is as into it as you and me, Brian, uh, uh, know, Walter O'Malley started talking to Robert Moses about a new stadium in 1948. Now, here's my question for you. If it weren't for the Dome, and let's say uh, Walter O'Malley had gone to – Robert Moses with the presentation of Dodger Stadium as it is, but with a facade at the corner of Atlantic and Flatbush. Uh, do you think, well, as I say that, though, considering uh, Robert Moses was so jaded from sports, I still don't necessarily think, considering that the argument Robert Moses kept making was for Walter O'Malley to buy the land, which Walter O'Malley didn't want to do. He just wanted eminent domain. And so 
like you say, with the whole money, it just all comes back to money with it. But like, I, I, you know, do you think, though, that the Dome was kind of too far ahead of its time in presentation for Walter to get what he wanted? Yes, I think so. I mean, I would guess, you know, a lot of cities uh, would, you know, since that time realized, you know, having a major league franchise is a big magnet for other business and all the rest of stuff, and that uh, public money has been used, obviously, in many cases to build uh, stadiums for private owners. Um, But I'll say this, in 1948, Ricky was still running the team, so I don't think if Ricky was still there, that he would have allowed Brooklyn uh, to move, uh, you know, after being in the World Series six out of ten years, and it could have been seven except for 51 um, with the shot heard around the world. Um, but, it, it, I, you know, I don't think Rick, uh, Ricky would have allowed that to happen. But, you know, they had their big split, I think, in 1950 when – Ricky went to Pittsburgh, and um, by the way, he wanted my father to go to Pittsburgh with him, and my dad loved Mr. Ricky, Uh, but O'Malley called my father and said, I'm offering, no, he called my mother, this dad thought was Dirty Pool, called my mother and said, would you like to see Harold home more often instead of traveling with the team? He said, I've offered him the job as the ticket manager for more money and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, Mom put a little pressure on Dad to take the new job as the uh, uh, business manager in charge of tickets for uh, the Dodgers in 1950-51. So anyway, Rick. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.